Mark 11 and verse 11. Let me read the passage. It says this, <clears throat> He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, <clears throat> he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it <clears throat> not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowds was, were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, Look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word. You know, religion uh, is only good religion if it works, right? Religion is only good religion if it works. We, we live in um, a smorgasbord, don't really know, that word wasn't in my notes, but it just popped into my mind. We, we live in a smorgasbord of, uh, <laughs> of religions, don't we? It's like, pick your one. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of religion options in this culture. And, uh, and the question we have to ask of those religions is, do they work, right? Because religion is only good religion if it works, Right? The other day I was walking downtown and I saw a car with a bumper sticker. And if, you, if this is your car, don't be too insulted. Um, but it said on the back, uh, what was it? Kindness is my religion. And I thought, oh, that's, that's cute. You know, that's sweet. That's very, very, you know, very nice. But my question immediately that popped into my head was, yeah, but does that work? Is that going to fix the world? Is that going to fix the problems that we're dealing with? Okay, let's just say everyone's kind. Let's just say everyone adopts the religion of kindness. So you can be kind, but cancer's still killing people. You can be kind, but floods and earthquakes and fires are still killing people, right? The world is still broken. The world is still systematically, systemically broken at a fundamental level, and just being kind isn't going to fix that, is it? Religion is only good religion if it works. Let me tell you a quick story. So... 
three years ago when we moved here, we bought our house. Uh, we wanted to do some renovations. We had a little bit of money set aside to do that. And like uh, any self-respecting man, I said, you know, babe, we could hire a contractor to do uh, the, the renovations or I could go buy tools and I could do the, the renovations, right? Amen. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so <laughs> maybe you shouldn't clap, actually. <laughs> no. Um, uh, yeah, anyways, um, so, I, so I went with, with some money in my pocket, and I went down to Lowe's, and I was looking at chop saws, and I've always wanted a good chop saw, and I'm like, just in case you don't know what I'm talking about, that's what they sound like, okay, um, anyways, so I'm looking at chop saws, and, and I see the off-brand chop saw, because I can't afford, you know, the name brand one with all the bells, and I noticed that the, the off-brand chop saw has all the features that I can't afford on the name brand chop saw. It's got double bevel action. It's got the, 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 the rolling arm thing. That I don't know what it's called. It's got, it looks super cool. It looks amazing. And yeah, it's, it's, it's made by Lowe's off-brand, but whatever. It's got all the features, right? So I took the bait, and I bought the one with all the features because it looked really good. So I bring it home. I'm excited. I pull it out of the box. I start cutting boards. I start making a shelf. And I'm like, every board that I'm cutting is crooked. And I'm so mad at myself. I'm like, Sam, you idiot. You can't even cut a board straight. Like, this is why you shouldn't try to do projects by yourself, right? You can't even cut a board. I'm like, surely this next board. Nope, crooked. Next board. Nope, crooked. Ah, what am I going to do? Okay. So finally, I take a good look at the saw and I go, the saw's crooked. The saw is crooked. They sold me a crooked saw, right? No big deal. Put it back in the box. Drive to Lowe's. Say, hey, look, the saw you sold me is crooked. And they kind of looked at me like, no. And I'm like, I swear, it's crooked. Okay. Give me another one. So they gave me the same exact saw, just a new one in a box. I said, great. This just got to be a one-off thing, right? I bring it home. I pull it out. Crooked saw. Still crooked boards, okay? And I'm thinking to myself, this saw has to do one thing. The fundamental function of this saw is to do what? Cut a board straight. So I don't care how many cool features it has. I don't care that it has double bevel. I don't care that it looks awesome. It doesn't cut board straight. So I bring it back. And the guy there was kind of like, well, you know, it's past the amount of time since you bought the first one. And I'm like, I don't care. It doesn't cut the board straight. So he said, okay, sir. You know, I didn't yell at him. <laughs> I don't think I did. Um, Maybe I did. But I'm just thinking, like, you know, if a saw can't cut a board straight, what does it matter? There's no purpose, right? So here's the reality, okay? Good religion is only good religion if it works. And it, just because it looks good, just because it looks amazing, just because it has massive following, and just because it has a big building, and just because it has people that are excited about it, doesn't mean that it's working, Okay, are you with me? Now, you're going to see what I mean by this in this text as we go. We're going to learn in this passage that Jesus has, listen, Jesus has zero tolerance for false religions. Did you know that? You know, one of the travesties of our age, one of the most damning, blasphemous lies of our day, and it just makes me sick every time I see it on the back of a car, is this thing that says coexist. And the cross is placed in the midst of these other faith symbols, these false, demonic lies of false religions. The cross is placed in the middle under this pretense, under this premise that Jesus is one of many ways. What do you think Jesus thinks about that? I think our text is going to tell us something about what Jesus thinks about universalism. This idea that all faiths are basically true and equally valid. That Jesus is sort of part of the, the soup of universalistic religious options. 
Every false religion is created by Satan, the father of lies. And it doesn't matter how good they look, the question we need to ask is, do they save? Do they cut the board straight? Satan, the father of lies, creates these, and they stand in the direct path of the wrath of the sovereign ascended Christ. You know, we talk about the wrath of God. We don't talk about the wrath of Jesus very much. Today, we're actually going to look at the wrath of Jesus. He is wrathful. And we're going to see that in this passage. There is only one way of salvation, and Jesus is it. Jesus is not impressed with big buildings and good worship and eloquent teaching and large congregations and viral or massive movements. He's not interested in that. He is interested, listen, he's interested in fruit. More specifically, the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus in our text this morning is going to become a fruit inspector. He's going to examine the fruit of the religious system of the day. Now, there's nothing I need to say about our passage this morning to make it interesting because it's just flat out interesting. Come on, Jesus curses a tree. What in the world is that? How many of you guys in the morning were just doing your devotions one time and came across that little nugget, right? You're like sipping your coffee like, oh, Lord, just give me a sweet reminder. And Jesus is like cursing a tree and then he's freaking out and throwing a fit in the temple. You're like, oh, what do I do with that? Uh, I'll get on Instagram and look for like something encouraging, right? What, 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 what is this all about? Why is Jesus doing this? What did this tree do to elicit Jesus' curse and judgment? What did this poor tree do that, that, that Jesus would, would react in such a way? What, what was going on in the temple that Jesus would explode with this, this rare glimpse of anger directed at the temple? Um, what, 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 did the, what did the temple possibly do to elicit this kind of action from Jesus. Today, I believe we're going to see that in order for Jesus to bring true life, listen, he must end all death, including dead religion. And every religion that is not sourced in Christ is dead, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what kind of outward appearance it has. Jesus is the fruit inspector, and he is going to examine the tree of the religion of the day Let's, let's dive into it. So we're going to pick up in verse 11 uh, of chapter 11, and i got to get a running start here. Last week we looked at what is called the triumphal entry. It's the moment where Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last week of his life. Passion week it is called oftentimes. So he enters into the, through the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives, and this massive procession forms. And last week we examined what was that procession, where did it come from, why was it there? And... Uh, what we found was that the people that were greeting Jesus were not necessarily authentic disciples. It was sort of a, a, a big show of hype, of shallow discipleship that sort of disbanded the second Jesus entered. Well, Jesus makes his way up to the Temple Mount, and we're going to start where the, the last week's text ends because they really tie together. We're going to start with this anticlimax of what happens when Jesus gets to the Temple after this large parade. He gets into the Temple, and you would imagine that, that with the greeting he received coming into Jerusalem, he would receive an even greater greeting at the temple because the temple is the place where God's presence is meant to be and Jesus is the son of God. So you would imagine he would get this great reception, but here's what happens. In verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when, note it, when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
Now, Mark wants us to see that Jesus walks into the temple, and rather than cleansing it right then, he looks around, he surmises his surroundings, and then he goes home and prepares for the next day when he's fresh to come in and deal with what he sees in the temple. Now, what is Mark drawing the attention of our eye to the seeing of Jesus for? He wants us to see that Jesus is seeing something in the temple. Well, I I would like to ask the question, what did Jesus see? With his divine eye, when he walked into the temple and he looked around, what did he see? I need to paint the picture for you in order to understand the the passage this morning. What did Jesus see when he walked in and looked around? He saw a few things. The first thing he saw was blatant rejection. Blatant rejection. They, They did not receive the king. They did not receive the high priest. They did not receive the prophet of all prophets. They rejected him with silence. He entered the temple and they did, they not only ignored him, they began to plot and scheme how they would kill him. So he saw blatant rejection. Secondly, Jesus saw a familiar place. Jesus grew up going to the temple. This was not the first time he had been there. In fact, the Gospel of John records the first time that he cleanses the temple. He spent much time in the temple coming on pilgrimages year after year. Jesus was very familiar with this place. It's not as though it's the first time he's seeing it. Thirdly, Jesus is seeing a massive and impressive structure. Herod's temple a little bit of backstory here. So uh, after the Solomonic temple was destroyed by the Babylons, there was a 70 years of exile. The Jews lived in Babylon. And then after that 70 years of exile, we read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah, a, a remnant of Jews was allowed to come back under the, the, um, the sovereignty of, of Xerxes to come back and rebuild the temple. And we learn about that in the book of Ezra. And the temple was rebuilt, but it was small. It was insignificant. It was nothing like Solomon's temple. And then after that, some time passed until Herod the Great, who was this puppet king under the Romans, had a lot of money and built most of what we see from the first century in Jerusalem, if you've been there. He came in, he remodeled the temple. He remodeled the temple and he made it massive. He made it massive. He, he, he held no expense back. This temple was astounding. It was huge. It was a wonder of the ancient world. It was the crown jewel of Jerusalem. It was Israel's most impressive feature. When you came to Jerusalem, your mind would immediately, or your eye would immediately be drawn to this massive temple on the mount with its golden pillars, the sun gleaming off of it. It would, it would suck the air out of the room. It was so impressive that later the disciples will point it out to Jesus and say, isn't this thing incredible? The temple was the center of not only the Jewish religion, it was the center of Jerusalem and really the center of Israel. This is what Jesus is looking around at. When I was in Israel some years ago, they take you underground and they show you the foundation stones of Herod's temple, and they're literally the size of a school bus, and they're one solid stone. They don't even understand, uh, really from an engineering standpoint, how they were able to get the stone into place without it cracking. This thing was huge. It was massive. Jesus also sees a bustling circus of people in chaos. Let me just remind you what I told you last week. 2.6 million people probably were in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Okay, so, so it's swollen with guests and foreigners, and they're all coming for one reason, and that is to come to the temple to offer a sacrifice and in order to interact with God. And so the temple is bustling. It's like Disneyland on a holiday. It's just crazy. There's sounds of shouting and bargaining and animals, and there's smells of feces on the ground. There's hot, stagnant air from the Middle Eastern climate, and Jesus is taking it all in. He's seeing it all. 
But Jesus sees something else. He sees past the facade. He sees past the exterior. And he sees into uh, what was really going on in the temple. So the temple was not a holy place. It was not a sacred place. It was not a righteous place. The temple was a money-making scheme. It was monopolized. It was a corrupt, monopolized, racketeering operation that was soaked in greed and extortion. The Sadducees had the monopoly. They held the deed to the title. They were the high priesthood. So they used the temple. They pimped out the temple and every aspect of it in order to make money for themselves. Okay, this sort of mob boss mentality was really what we're dealing with when it comes to Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law. Because the Sadducees controlled the temple, the Romans allowed it because it was good money-making for them. There was taxes that happened on top of that. How did they make their money in the temple? Let me just give you a couple things. They made their their money in the temple, first of all, by currency exchange. You guys ever been to a foreign country before? What do you got to do? First thing you got to do is exchange your money, and you're totally at the mercy of the person that you're exchanging your money at. You don't know what your exchange rate's going to be, and oftentimes, oftentimes you get ripped off. Oftentimes your exchange rate isn't good. So the temple wouldn't allow the, the currency of Rome, which was the common coin of the day, because it had a bust of Herod on it, and they saw it as potentially idolatrous. So for that reason, uh, the, the temple uh, money-making scheme would basically say you have to exchange your coin for uh, Tyrian coin or, or Israeli coin at a very, very bad exchange rate. This was how they made their money. And, of course, Rome would get their cut. Herod would get his cut. Everything was taxed. Lastly, they would sell what were considered pre-approved animal sacrifices. So you're a pilgrim, you're coming into Jerusalem in order to offer your sacrifice, you bring your own lamb. Well, guess what? The line to get the priest to approve your sacrifice is so long that you can't stand in it. But guess what? There's a vendor over here that says, oh, we have a pre-approved lamb for you, already been examined by the high priest. Oh, we have a pre-approved dove for you over here, already been examined So they would make it impossible to get a priest to approve your sacrifice. Therefore, you would be forced into this this exorbitantly marked up animal that was pre-approved by the priesthood. Do you see what's happening? This this is a mafia-esque operation. Okay, it's like when you go to Disneyland and you can't bring your own food in, then you gotta spend $13 on a water bottle, right? Sorry, Dana, I know you love Disneyland, but right, $13, 12, 10? No? Okay, when I was there, it was like $10 for a water bottle. All right, anyways. (laughs) I'm not saying Disney's the Antichrist. I'm just saying Disney's the Antichrist. Okay. Um, <laughs> this, man, they got this thing thought out. They know exactly how to make money, and they're squeezing these pilgrims every ounce of money that they have. And this, my friends, this is what Jesus sees. This is what he sees when he looks around the Temple Mount. He sees all this going on. He's aware of it. He sees right through to the backbone of the false religion of what Judaism had become, Not what God had intended for it to be, not what the temple was designed to be, a place where God could interface with humans, with Gentiles, with Jews. No, this had become a monopoly, and it was blasphemous. Verse 12, the most bizarre thing happens here. Jesus is going to parable dead religion. Look at 12. He says, on the following day, this is next morning, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now, just that little phrase right there is interesting, isn't it? Jesus is hungry fully God, but he's also fully man. He has hunger, okay? It's the morning. He's got a big day ahead. He's going to be burning some calories. He needs some food. And there was a custom at the time that when you were traveling, that fig trees oftentimes would be something you could stop and and grab a snack. Now, verse 13, 
By the way, this is, you know, I love road snacks. It's like my favorite part of trips. You know, you get to stop at the little gas station and get like a jerky. And, and my wife and I are funny because like we, we, we feel when we're almost to Grant's Pass, we're like, it's our last chance to get road snacks. And sometimes we'll stop like 20 minutes before Grant's Pass and just get some, because we can't, you know, like I just, okay. So Jesus, he's getting road snacks here. Okay, I digress. Uh, 12 through 14. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not in the season for figs. And he said to it, Jesus is talking to a tree. Can you just, just stop? Let that hit you. Jesus is talking to a tree. Uh, he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And what is Jesus doing here? Why is he cursing a fig tree? Why is he doing this? Uh, it's, it's actually not as hard to figure out as you might think. See, Mark does this thing. Mark has this particular writing style. We've been getting to know it as we go through the book. He does this thing. Uh, some people call it the Markin sandwich, where he takes something and he puts the bread on either side of it. And, and that way, whatever's in the middle is the point. So this idea of the tree, it comes up here and then it's going to come up again in a few verses. And what's in the middle? The middle is Jesus dealing with the false religion of the temple. So whatever Jesus is doing here with this tree, the point has to do with the corruption and the judgment of the temple and the religious system of the day. Are you with me? What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is enacting a parable rather than telling a parable. Rather than Jesus saying once there was a tree that was barren. and No, Jesus is acting out the parable and Jesus is acting as really the prophet here. This is a very prophetic type of action that Jesus is taking. He is, of course, the king. He is, of course, the priest. And he is, of course, the prophet. So Jesus is illustrating something by the way that he's interacting with this tree. Okay, we need to understand that he is prophesying future judgment on the temple and on the religious system. Now, why does Jesus choose this tree? Why does Jesus choose this tree? Well, Mark tells us, if you look carefully, it says that from a distance, Jesus saw the fig tree and the fig tree was what? Full of leaves. Okay, so from a distance, this tree looks healthy. It looks vibrant. It looks like it ought to be bearing fruit. Now, you might be saying, if you're a careful reader, yeah, but Mark told us that it's not the season for figs. So wasn't this kind of unfair? Is Jesus just throwing a temper tantrum here? I mean, this, clearly this poor tree is not in season, so Jesus is punishing the tree for doing something that it's not able to do? Well, no, actually. And if you were a first century reader, uh, you would understand this, okay? Fig trees, before the leaves would come and after the leaves would come, they would already be budding with these tiny little nodules, these tiny little pre-fruits that someone could come along and grab in their hand, typically in the springtime. They wouldn't bloom figs until the fall, but in the springtime, you could come and you could get a handful of these little snacks that would have some carbohydrates, probably some vitamin C, and Jesus knows that. Now, if there's leaves on the tree... There's most certainly nodules. Jesus sees it from the distance. He comes up and there's no fruit. What is that telling Jesus about this tree? It is the proverbial hypocrite. It is a false tree. This tree is putting forth leaves as though it is vibrant and holistically healthy and producing life. But in reality, this tree is a liar. And if you lived in the desert, you would understand that trees that don't produce fruit cannot exist. They take up water. So Jesus 
chooses this dead, false, hypocritical tree in order to illustrate and parable what is going to happen with the temple, which, follow me, the temple is symbolic for all of apostate Judaism, all of what the religion of the Jews had become. Now, Jesus is not just picturing something. He's prophesying something. What is he prophesying? He's prophesying the destruction of the temple. Those of you that have studied history within 30 to 40 years, 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. It was disassembled block by block by the Romans. That's why in Mark 13, in verse 1, it says, He came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So the disciples are caught up in the, the amazing leaves of the temple. And what does Jesus say? 13 verse 2, he says, To them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is prophesying destruction on the temple itself. Go to Jerusalem and you will see it. It hasn't been rebuilt. There's one little wall and they worship that one little wall. So this was fulfilled. Jesus is parabling and he's prophesying the judgment of Judaism. Now, Jesus is not asking this tree to be more than it is. He's simply asking this tree to do what it's meant to do. The temple was never meant to be God's ultimate solution to relating with his people, but it was meant to be a temporary solution, and the temple had no longer, uh, was no longer operating under its purpose. So it needs to go. Every created thing was made by God for God, and all things must yield to that eternal purpose. Do you understand that? God makes for the purpose of bearing fruit. God created man for his own glory. God created creation for his own glory. And creation needs to yield to that reality. Now, Jesus is going to act out what he just illustrated in one of the most interesting events that we see of Jesus. Up until this time, Jesus has only really done um, life-giving things. And now in this moment, Jesus is taking the life of a tree and he's about to really, really unleash his anger on this particular system. There's this misconception that really only the Father has wrath and that Jesus is the nice one and, and God the Father is the mean one. I would say that this text is going to say something different. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Okay, now to understand what Jesus is perturbed with, we need to understand what Mark is illustrating here. Okay, uh, Mark is saying that Jesus is taking aim at the money changers. He's taking aim at those selling pre-approved sacrifices. He's taking aim on people taking a shortcut through the court of Gentiles because it was easier. Jesus, this average-looking, uh, normal Jewish man, walks into the temple, this massive scheme, this massive operation that is controlled by the most powerful people in the land. He walks in and single handedly shuts down the whole operation. In his humanity, he does that. Imagine someone, very average, let's say me, okay, uh, just an average person, okay, walks into the Josephine County Fairgrounds 
and I shut down every vendor. I shut down all the animals. I drive out all the livestock. I get the carnival workers gone. I say, pack up your stuff. You're out. I flip over tables. One person. Do you think I could do that? I don't think so. Jesus shuts down the whole show. Lights out. Whole show. He drives out those buying and he drives out those selling. This is an Ezra-like prophetic moment where Jesus is violently flipping over tables and spilling all the money and the contents on the floor. Jesus is not gracious. He's not patient in this moment. He is flipping tables. He's not saying, excuse me. I would really like to make sure that I am tolerant and that I'm inclusive and that I'm accepting of your scheme here. So could you maybe consider packing up your stuff and going, no. He flips tables. He kicks baskets. He chases animals. And I would imagine he raises his voice. This is a side of Jesus we haven't seen. What could bring Jesus to the point where he is unleashing this kind of wrath? He's exploding with force. By the way, anger is only a negative emotion when it is unrighteous. Did you know that? I was reminded of a, a Peter Scazzaro quote uh, that out of his, his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. He, he was talking about a time where he was praying for um, God to help remove his anger. And he succinctly felt the Father speak to him, which other of my attributes would you like me to remove? I thought that was profound. Right? Which other of my attributes would you like me to remove? Anger is actually something God has. He is angry, but he is righteously angry. Our job as Christians is to be productively and righteously angry at what God is angry at and why God is angry at it. Now, the next verse tells us why Jesus is so infuriated both at the buyers and the sellers. It would seem to me to make more sense that Jesus would drive out the vendors, but why is he driving out the people that are just trying to be at the temple? Well, he tells us, verse 17. Now, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? For who? For all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, to understand this point, you need to understand the design, the layout of the temple. See, God was very kind to the nations. God was a missionary. God is a missionary. God has always had his eye on the nations. And the way that God designed the temple was this. He, he created the holy of holies that only the high priest would go into once a year. Then he created the holy place outside of that where the priests would enter and offer sacrifice or burnt incense or whatever the, the, the particular occasion was. From there, you had the court of the women, Jewish women. Then you had the court of the Jews. And then you had the outer court, which was referred to as the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. This was a space that God had created so that all people, those who were not part of ethnic Israel, those who were not part of the covenant community of God, could come in and interact with God and offer sacrifices to Yahweh. This is the place, this outer court, this is the place that these money changers, that these people that ultimately work for Caiaphas and Annas, the, the, the money-making scheme of the temple, this is where they've chosen to set up their vendors, their booths. In doing so, they have restricted and inhibited Gentiles from coming into this place in order to what? Pray. So the issue is that people could buy their sacrifice or change their money on the Mount of Olives, but instead they've chosen to do it on the Temple Mount. Why? Convenience. 
So the Gentiles, their space has been sold to the highest bidder. Their space has been given over to those looking to make money. And now the nations have no place to worship Yahweh. This infuriates Jesus because it infuriates the Father. Are you with me? This is about convenience. And the Jews at this point had become racist. They essentially were spitting in the face of God's missional attitude by desecrating his inclusive temple mount. God had made a place for the Gentiles, and the Jews who saw themselves as ethnically superior to every other race had said, forget the court of Gentiles, let's use that to make more money. Jesus is furious. And it's not as though he didn't know this. See, Jesus grew up seeing this injustice. He grew up seeing this, this, this racism, and he deals with it. Verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes, that is the Sanhedrin, the 70 members of the council, Heard it? Heard what? They heard Jesus taking their money. (laughs) They heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The nail in the coffin for Jesus is what? Money. It's money. He is now at a point where he is not only a thorn in their side, not only a pebble in their shoe, he is inhibiting their bankroll. He's got to die. And you think Jesus didn't know that that was going to be the nail in the coffin? Jesus knew this. He orchestrated this. He's following the Father's lead. He has to die when the Father has called him to die in order to atone for sin. He knows that the quickest way to go to the cross is to stop up the money flow for the mafia. He's going down. He's got a target on his back. Verse 19. Now, when evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. You see what Mark's doing here? See, the disciples may not have understood it at the time. What Mark is doing is he's sandwiching the idea of the fig tree on either end of the cleansing of the temple in order to show that the the, the fig tree is symbolic for the dead religion of Judaism. It is cursed How? From the roots up. What does that mean? It means that false religion is not redeemable. Okay, false religion doesn't need a tune-up. Islam doesn't need a tune-up. Buddhism doesn't need a tune-up. False evangelical Christianity doesn't need a tune-up. It needs to die so that it can find true life sourced in the new vine, Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus is not tolerant of false religion. He is intolerant of false religion. He loves the nations. He loves the Gentiles. He loves the lost. He hates false religion. Why? Because he doesn't hate you enough to give you a gospel that can't save you. Jesus saves. He saves. There's only one mediator between God and man. Christ. Jesus, Paul tells us. Right? There is one true hope of salvation. And it's not kindness. Although a fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Am I right? But kindness alone will not save the cosmos. War needs to be made on evil and sin and death and false religion. And you think Jesus flipping tables here is intense? Read the book of Revelation. Jesus is going to flip the world. He is going to judge all evil and all sin and cleanse this world once for all, recreating it. You ever praise God for his wrath? You should. It feels harsh. In our, in our very coddled society. Jesus here is exhibiting wrath, and we ought to praise him for it. 
Because his wrath is not directed at the last and the least and the lost. His wrath is directed at those who are bringing injustice and those who are using religion to pimp out something like the temple. Jesus is indignant towards it. And verse 22 is really the key here. He says, Jesus answered them. In response to Peter's observation of the tree, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Why is Jesus saying that? Because he's alluding to the fact that they have not had faith in God. Their faith has been in what? It's been in the temple. It's been in the priesthood. It's been in their ethnicity. It's been in the, 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 the high priesthood and the leadership of Israel. It's been in anything and everything other than God. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, don't be like the tree. Source yourself in God. Find your faith in him. That is true religion. Now, let's just finish verse One, Jesus is, rather than diving into what false religion is, Jesus is going to paint a picture of what true religion is. He's going to do so first by um, pointing them to faith-filled prayer. He says in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. What is Jesus doing here? He's telling the disciples that the the false and dead religion that they've been plugged into their entire life is powerless. Yet, sourcing themselves in the true God in Christ has infinite power. See, Israel had been trying to move the mountain of Roman oppression for hundreds of years. And Jesus says, if you're sourced in me, if you're believing in the Father, I will remove the mountain of sin and death by faith immediately. It's impressive. Jesus wants them to see that there is power and that power is not theirs. It's not theirs to be controlled. It is theirs to be yielded to. And it is the Father's power. And then secondly, he says, faith-filled forgiveness in verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So rather than drawing them to the false, phony, exterior, superficial religion of the temple, like the Pharisees who would stand in public making sure everyone could see them pray and how long they would pray and how much they would give, he would say, go do the private work that pleases God, which is to go forgive your brother in secret. This is what Jesus is getting at. Now, what do we do with all this? What is the point of all this? Why does all of this matter? I'd like to zoom out of the minutia, zoom out of the, the verse by verse here and just kind of ask, what is this all about? I think here we learn something about what God has done and something about what God feels. Okay, first of all, we learn what God has done. See, Jesus is not cleansing the temple. Once again, we find a misleading title on the top of your Bible. You know, those are not inspired, those little parts on top of the, those aren't inspired. Those aren't God's words. That's somebody that put that in to try to be helpful for you. Okay, just like the triumphal entry was not really the triumphal entry, uh, the cleansing of the temple was not a cleansing. It was a judging. Different. It was a pre uh, a prefacing of the ultimate destruction and end of the religion that the Jews had been following. Not the true religion that Yahweh created, the false religion that they had replaced it with. Jesus is not cleansing, he is judging, and he is replacing. You see, Jesus has come to become the new temple. He is the foundation. This is New Testament Theology 101. He is the foundation stone of that new temple. And who is the living stones of that temple? You and I. 
Okay? He is the foundation stone and the capstone. We are the living stones. Everything you need to know about what Jesus is doing here is found in John chapter 15. I'd encourage you to go read that later. Jesus says that the vine, which was Israel, has been replaced. And Jesus says, now I am the vine. And you are the branches. Instead of plugging into the false religion of the day, plug into me, he would say, and you will bear much fruit. Jesus tore the veil on the temple, and the Gentiles no longer had to come to the court because the Spirit of God got out to the Gentiles, who was the first person to recognize that Jesus was the Lord. It was a Gentile, the centurion, right? The second that Jesus atoned for sin, the Spirit of God was released on the nations. We don't have to go to some place now. The Spirit of God has come to us. Here we are, Grants Pass, Oregon. Praise God. Jesus has become the temple mobile. He is God's presence through us, the body, now all across the world. Aren't you thankful for that? Jesus has no time for a stuffy religious place. He has the nations in his mind. He knows that when Pentecost comes, the Spirit of God will come and the gospel will be released and thousands upon thousands upon thousands will come to saving faith, not in a place, not in people, not in a person, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise God. So we see something about what God has done. We also see something about what God feels, and that is that God feels no tolerance for false religious systems. In cursing the temple, Jesus is reminding us that he will one day curse all cults, all false religion. They all will die on the vine. There is only one true place for life. Now, what I'd like to do with my last five minutes is think with you just briefly about what false religion is. This text, I believe, calls us to examine ourselves. We should look at this text and we should think, okay, what should this make me think about the religion that I'm sourced in, the religion that I'm looking to? We need to examine ourselves. We need to examine our church, okay? So let's do that. Let's spend a few minutes. Let's just think about, is Philippi, or is my life, you can say, is it fruit or is it foliage? Because here's the thing about religion, right? We're really good at making it look good. But Jesus doesn't really care about any of that. He doesn't care. He's not impressed. So let me give you five things about false religion that I think are going to bring some clarity and, and some good questions that will come with each. First, false religion elevates place, power, and particular people. Have you ever noticed that? False religion elevates place and power and particular people. We see this in the text. The false religion that Judaism, uh, that the Jews had, had clung to, was centered around a holy place and holy people and holy power. This is what happens when we stray from the gospel. We begin to look to our relics. We begin to look at our traditions. We begin to look, our, we begin to look to our buildings. We do it. We do it. It happens. It's what happened in Catholicism. We needed a system reset. We needed Martin Luther to come along and say, you're worshiping the Pope. You're worshiping the relics. You're worshiping your buildings. You're saved by grace, by faith. We needed a system reset. See, here's what happens, right? Churches start out healthy because they have the gospel, and the, and the gospel is the focus, and Jesus is the focus. But over time, we start to be given the gift of infrastructure, and the gift of buildings, and the gift of success, and the gift of gatherings, and the gift of influence, and the gift of websites, and the gift of multi-sites, and campuses, and cameras, and everything. And what happens is we start to look to those things instead of the source of life. Every church struggles with it. 
This is one of the reasons we believe church planting is so necessary. Because church planting detaches us from the stuff and it makes us have to abide in Christ. What do we have as Christians? We have the gospel. What more do we need? Thank God we have a place to meet. It's great. Thank God you're sitting in a chair. Great. Take it all. I don't care. It's the gospel that transforms lives. It's not this space. It's not this sound system. Guys, look at me. Don't let me forget that. Because churches all across the West are forgetting it. Spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to create places, to create feelings in people. And forgetting that what we really have to offer is the gospel and the gospel alone. Number two, praise God, praise God. I love the golf clap. <laughs> By the way, just, just a side note, this, this, is why, this is why the gospel has exploded throughout history, even though it's gone to seed in, in places of power. See, what happens is, is as soon as the gospel, Tim Keller points this out in his book, Center Church, he says, as soon as the gospel gets in bed with power, it goes to seed. And then what happens? It crops up in places, usually impoverished places, usually places of poverty, places where people are broken. Because our faith is not sourced in a place like Islam. Our, source is not, our, our, our faith is not sourced in a holy place. Our, source, our faith is sourced in a gospel reality that travels. That's why Christianity is exploding in China right now. Christianity is exploding in Africa right now. And Christianity is in decline in the West. Because Christianity has gotten in bed with power. It's got conflated with politics. The gospel is what saves. And desperate people need the gospel. Number two, false religion seeks to please the insider. False religion seeks to please the insider. Okay, uh, the Jews had become arrogant racists who despised Gentiles. This is what false religion does. It becomes, it's, it's, we make this shift, right? We, we start out, we're missional, we're thinking about the lost. I'm already starting to feel the tug. Guys, it's been three years since we planted this church. We came out here to reach lost people. Okay, but you're, so you start feeling the tug. I mean, people are coming, and those people that are coming, they have needs, and maybe we should have some more programs, and maybe we should do some more classes, and maybe we should offer some more things, and maybe we should just create more stuff for Christians to do on the weekdays. Okay, but here's the problem. We didn't come out here to keep Christians occupied or entertained. We came out here to reach the lost. May we never forget that. Let me ask you personally. I'm just, I'm just going to pick on Philip. I want to pick on you a little bit too. Okay, how is your court of Gentiles looking? How cluttered is it with convenience? This was convicting for me this week. Do I have space in my temple for the unlovable, for the lost? Or am I just so worried about what's going on in my own little world? Statistics have proven that as soon as a church drifts from mission into inter internal mindset, it begins to die. This is true. So if this church, if we want to kill this church, let's spend all our time thinking about programs and how we can get Christians happy and keep Christians happy. We need to make disciples. And how we make disciples is we go on mission. We've reached the lost we have space in our court of Gentiles for messiness. Are you guys open to that? If you're not open to that, there's a lot of churches. This is going to be a messy place. We have to be a messy place or we're going to die. You understand? Killing a church is not hard. It happens every day. We have to source ourselves in Christ. We have to keep our court of Gentiles. Let me ask you this question. Is your heart still broken that the nations do not yet glorify God? Does that break your heart? Let me put a finer point on it. Does the fact that there are probably more than 35,000 people in this community that are going straight to hell, does that burden you? 
I'll be honest, there are times where I don't think about it. There's times where I'm just so focused on my own thing that I forget that God is a missional God and that the gospel saves and that people are going to hell. Is your Gentile court cluttered? Does this church have space for the outsider? May the answer always be yes. Don't let me forget this, okay? Number four, I'm gonna skip number three. Number four, false religion seeks external conformity. False religion seeks external conformity. Everyone else was impressed with the leaves of the temple. That's what we need to realize here, okay? Everyone else was impressed with the leaves of the temple. See, nobody else thought that what was going on at the temple, there was anything wrong with it. I mean, maybe there were some people, I don't know. Okay, maybe the John the Baptists of the world, maybe a few. Maybe the outliers, maybe the, maybe, I don't know, maybe the Essenes. But for the most part, most of the Jews coming into the temple, they looked and they saw the high priest with, with all of their attention to detail to make sure that the holy place stayed sacred and that the garments of the priest were clean and that the sacrifices were done in a holy and a righteous way. It looked so good. It was impressive. There's only one problem. There was no fruit. It was dead. That's what Jesus said. You're like a whitewashed tomb. Really good on the outside. Here's the problem. False religion contents itself with the appearance of fruitfulness. It contents itself with the, the, the appearance of fruitfulness. It can appear very, very, very uh, beautiful. This is why Islam explodes. This is why Mormonism is popular. This is why there's a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses. This is why people love Buddhism. Because they see good things. But because there's good things doesn't mean that it's a God thing, right? Just because there's leaves doesn't mean there's fruit. Humans can actually do quite a bit on their own. We can be pretty moral. But at the end of the day, don't buy into the leaves. We need the fruit. The fruit comes from the Spirit of God. Okay? False religion looks attractive. So does Satan. He is the father of, or pardon me, he is, yeah, the, the, he's the father of false religions. He is the angel of light. Is it any mistake that false religion is attractive to humans? Of course it's attractive. Where do you think it's coming from? Now, let me say this and say this carefully. False religion is always exposed, okay? It's always exposed. And when it is exposed, it is always steeped in scandal. It's always steeped in scandal and Cover up because, listen, because it values its own appearance over the sanctity of God. At the heart of false religion are people that care more about how we are viewed than how God sees us and the sanctity of God's name. That's false religion. So I ask you this Is your sin grievous because of the social cost or because of the comfort cost or the comfort lost? How much attention and repentance do you give to your internal thoughts and your t internal motives? Let me put it this way. Are you content with leaves? Because leaves give the appearance of righteousness and, and, and people will praise you for those leaves. They are happy to let you have leaves. And your, your wicked, fallen soul is happy to just produce leaves, to just do the righteous things, to just go through the motions. God is not interested in your leaves. He's interested in your fruit, Sam, how do, I, how do I get fruit? Read John 15. Abide in the vine. It's not your fruit, see? It's his fruit. You don't produce fruit. He does it. You're just a tube. You just hold on. He, the Spirit of God, produces the fruit through you. You cannot produce fruit without him, without the vine, okay? 
Are you willing, this is a hard question, are you willing to destroy your reputation if it means his name will remain sanctified? And the answer to anyone in false religion is no. Are you willing to, to destroy your name in order that his name might be glorified? Only the gospel can produce that kind of honesty. And number five in closing, false religion celebrates external productivity. False religion ex- ex- celebrates, it celebrates external productivity. The temple was bustling with activity. It looked so successful. It looked so fruitful. And Jesus is emphasizing to them, I'm not impressed. Prayer is what impresses me, Jesus would say. Dependent prayer. See, false religion begins when you think more about what you will do for God than what God has done for you. Are you with me? You start focusing more on what you're going to do for God than what God has done for you and what God may be doing through you, and you are a breath away from dead false religion because every dead false religion at its core is about doing because as humans, we love that. I preached a sermon a few weeks ago about the drug of doing. We love to do. Why? Because we're prideful. And when we do things, we get the credit. We love and we are able to produce much leaves. God cares nothing for your leaves. He's not interested. We prefer leaf production and we live in a day where leaf production is easy, isn't it? 4K cinematography, Instagram filters, just hit a button. Man, it's so easy to look like we're fruitful It's so easy to post a picture with your perfect little family knowing that 15 minutes ago you were screaming at your kids. It's so easy to put out leaves. Now, hear this. Hear this. This is important. Jesus didn't curse the tree because it was fruitless. Jesus cursed the tree because it was a hypocrite. Do you understand me? Jesus is not going to curse you because you're not bearing fruit. Jesus is saying, be honest. Source yourself in me and you will bear fruit. He says in John, those who are not bearing much fruit, he prunes them so that they can bear more fruit. The sin of the false religion of Judaism was hypocrisy. They wanted people to think they were bearing fruit. And in reality, they were not. And I'll say this again. This is a quote from our speaker at Man Camp. He said, you know, fruit is not something that we get from God. It is God. It's not that God gives us kindness. God is kind. And when God is, is, is manifest in our lives, kindness comes out. So the goal is not to produce fruit. It's to be connected to him. And when you're connected to the kind one, the patient one, all the fruits of the spirit are, in essence, the identity of God the Father. So I ask you these questions. Are you seeking to do things for him or are you seeking him? Are you seeking to get things from him or are you seeking to get closer to him? Are you content with producing leaves? And I want to invite you guys this week to examine that. Where have I fooled myself into thinking that I'm fruit-bearing when in fact I'm just putting on a show? And the really scary question, are you content to put on a show? Are you content for others to think you're righteous? Are you content for others to think that you are a fruit-bearing? And are you willing to let the kind Jesus interact with your soul? Remember, if you're a believer, Jesus isn't flipping over your tables. That's not how he deals with you. If you're a believer, Jesus is kindly working in your heart and in your soul. He reserves his wrath. Listen to me. 
He reserves his wrath for those who are his enemies. If you are in Christ, you are not his enemy, you're his son. He removes the idols of your heart kindly. Sometimes he has to yank a little bit. He does not flip the tables of your heart because you're his kids. So I challenge you this week to examine your fruit. I challenge you this week to look at your saw. (laughs) Is it cutting straight? Is it able to save? Is the gospel that you're believing, is it a saving gospel? And I don't just mean the gospel you confess. I mean the gospel you believe. See, you might confess one gospel and believe another. The gospel that you're subscribed to, the gospel that's filling your screen, the thing that you're looking to to answer the problems of the world, is it able to save or is it dead? Ask yourself that, this question. Amen? Let's pray. Ryan and Kaylee, you guys can come up. Father, thank you so much for, once again, for your word. Lord, thank you so much for hard texts like this that remind us that though you have such kindness, Lord, you also have a side of severity. And Lord Jesus, I'm thankful for your wrath because your wrath will eliminate and eradicate death and evil and sin in this world. And one day we will greet a new heavens and a new earth that is free from pain, from injustice, from sin, from darkness. Because Jesus, you are fixing, you are saving And we are thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.